Welcome to the Dunwoody Community Church Podcast. We are so glad you have chosen to listen in to one of our Sunday services, and we hope that you will be blessed by today's message. For more information about Dunwoody Community Church, please visit us at dunwoodychurch.org. That's dunwoodychurch.org. Welcome to the first Sunday after Easter. You know, I don't know about you, but I always feel a little guilty right after Easter, because Easter is just the biggest, most important day of the year in the Christian calendar. But we have been driving towards it for so long, for a couple months now, we have been headed towards Easter. You know, we say that every week, so many weeks towards Easter. Why are we doing this at Lent? Because we're coming towards Easter. Uh, you know, th- th- we've gotten through this section of the church calendar where in the fall, we start planning for Christmas and the Christmas celebrations, and we take a couple weeks off, and then we start planning for the Easter celebrations. And so, again, I always feel a little guilty right after Easter, because I come away from the Easter service and I'm excited, and I'm up, and at the same time, whew, I'm tired. And, and I'm, I'm kind of glad that we've moved through all that. So we try and slow down a bit after Easter. We, we try and obviously not cancel things, but just take the pace down a bit. So I'm going to cheat just a little on the sermon today. We're actually going to go back and look at some passages that we already looked at from our Lenten series on bad boys of the Bible. Because as I was preparing those sermons, I also noticed things in them that I thought, oh, these are good examples. You've got bad guys doing bad, making bad examples, but you've also got good guys making good examples in there. So I've humorously uh, titled this rather than bad boys of the Bible, it's boys of the Bible. We're going to learn some valuable lessons over the next couple weeks as we go back and look at these stories and and see how folks could have done it better. How did people respond well in these same bad situations? So today, we're going to go back and look at Korah's rebellion in Numbers chapter 16. So if you've got your Bible, open it up to Numbers chapter 16. But as we read this time, rather than focusing on what Korah and his associates do, the bad guys, I want you to focus on what Moses and Aaron do, because they present a wonderful picture in here about how to deal with opposition. I want you to watch as we go through the story. How do Moses and Aaron deal with Korah's rebellion, with the animosity, and the opposition that they face. So read along with me, Numbers chapter 16. Korah, son of Izhar, the son of Kohah, the son of Levi, and certain Reubenites, Dathan and Abiram, sons of Eliab, and On, the son of Peleth, became insolent and rose up against Moses. With them were 250 Israelite men, well-known community leaders who had been appointed members of the council. They came as a group to oppose Moses and Aaron and said to them, you have gone too far. The whole community is holy, every one of them, and the Lord is with them. Why then do you set yourselves up above the Lord's assembly? When Moses heard this, he fell face down. Then he said to Korah and all his followers, in the morning, the Lord will show who belongs to him and who is holy, and he will have that person come near him. The man he chooses, he will cause to come near him. You, Korah, and all your followers are to do this. Take censers, and tomorrow put burning coals and incense in them before the Lord. The man the Lord chooses will be the one who is holy. You Levites have gone too far. Moses also said to Korah, Now listen, you Levites, isn't it enough for you that the God of Israel has separated you from the rest of the Israelite community and brought you near to himself to do the work at the Lord's tabernacle, to stand before the community and minister to them? 
He's brought you and all your fellow Levites near himself. But now you are trying to get the priesthood too. It is against the Lord that you and all your followers have banded together. Who is Aaron that you should grumble against him? Then Moses summoned Dathan and Abiram, the sons of Eliab. But they said, we will not come. Isn't it enough that you've brought us up out of a land flowing with milk and honey to kill us in the wilderness? And now you also want to lord it over us? Moreover, you haven't brought us into a land flowing with milk and honey or given us an inheritance of field and vineyards. Do you want to treat these men like slaves? No, we will not come. Then Moses became very angry and he said to the Lord, do not accept their offering. I've not taken so much as a donkey from them, nor have I wronged any of them. Moses said to Korah, you and all your followers are to appear before the Lord tomorrow. You and they and Aaron, each man is to take his censer and put incense in it, 250 censers in all, and present it before the Lord. You and Aaron are to present your censers also. So each of them took his censers, put burning coals and incense in it, and stood with Moses and Aaron at the entrance to the tent of meeting. When Korah had gathered all his followers in opposition to them at the entrance to the tent of meeting, the glory of the Lord appeared to the entire assembly. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, separate yourself from this assembly so I can put an end to them at once. But Moses and Aaron fell face down and cried out, O God, the God who gives breath to all living things, will you be angry with the entire assembly when only one man sins? Then the Lord said to Moses, say to the assembly, move away from the tents of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. Moses got up and went to Dathan and Abiram, and the elders of Israel followed him. He warned the assembly, move back from the tents of these wicked men. Do not touch anything belonging to them, or you will be swept away because of all their sins. So they moved away from the tents of Korah, Dathan, and Abiram. Dathan and Abiram had come out and were standing with their wives, children, and little ones at the entrances to their tents. Then Moses said, this is how you will know that the Lord has sent me to do all these things and that it was not my idea. If these men die a natural death and suffer the fate of all mankind, then the Lord has not sent me. But if the Lord brings about something totally new and the earth opens its mouth and swallows them with everything that belongs to them and they go down alive into the realm of the dead, then you will know that these men have treated the Lord with contempt. As soon as he finished saying all this, the ground underneath them split open and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them and their households and all those associated with Korah together with all their possessions. They went down alive into the realm of the dead with everything they owned. The earth closed over them and they perished and were gone from the community. At their cries, all the Israelites around them fled shouting, the earth is going to swallow us too. And fire came out from the Lord and consumed the 250 men who were offering the incense. The Lord said to Moses, Tell Eleazar, son of Aaron, the priest, to remove the censers from the charred remains and scatter the coals some distance away, for the censers are holy. The censers are the men who sinned at the cost of their lives. Hammer the censers into sheets to overlay the altar, for they were presented before the Lord and have become holy. Let them be assigned to the Israelites. So Eleazar, the priest, collected the bronze censers brought by those who had been burned to death, and he had them hammered out to overlay the altar as the Lord had directed him through Moses. This was to remind the Israelites that no one except the descendant of Aaron should come to burn incense before the Lord, or he would become like Korah and his followers. The next day, the whole Israelite community grumbled against Moses and Aaron. You have killed the Lord's people, they said. But when the assembly gathered in opposition to Moses and Aaron and turned towards the tent of meeting, suddenly the cloud covered it and the glory of the Lord appeared. Then Moses and Aaron went to the front of the tent of the meeting, and the Lord said to Moses, Get away from this assembly so I can put an end to them at once. And they fell face down. Then Moses said to Aaron, take your censer, put incense in it, along with burning coals from the altar, and hurry to the assembly to make atonement for them. Wrath has come out from the Lord. The plague has started. 
So Aaron did as Moses said and ran into the midst of the assembly. The plague had already started among the people, but Aaron offered the incense and made atonement for them. He stood between the living and the dead, and the plague stopped. But 14,700 people died from the plague, in addition to those who had died because of Korah. Then Aaron returned to Moses at the entrance to the tent of meeting, for the plague had stopped. So, Moses, we don't know exactly how long he has been in charge, told you that Numbers begins with this story about how the Israelites refused to go into the promised land. Now, we know that's within the first year after they've left Egypt. We don't know how far into the future this is. Is this just a few months later? Is this 10 years later? It's somewhere in that next 40-year period where they wander in the desert. This story takes place that Korah, who is a leader among the Israelites. If you remember, it says that he is a Levite. Israelites are named Israelite because they all descend from a guy named Israel. He had 12 sons, and each of his sons, their descendants becomes what is called a tribe of Israel. So Korah is from the tribe of Levi, and he's actually very, very high in the hierarchy. We're told that the Levites are divided into like four or five divisions. We're told this earlier in the book, and Korah is the leader of one of those divisions. So there's about 20, 22,000 Levites, and Korah leads like a quarter or a fifth of it. He has thousands of guys that, that are under him but he's also got one guy that's over him, and that's Aaron. Korah is a divisional leader, but above them is Aaron, the high priest, the brother of Moses. And although he doesn't state it this way, we're told later he's just making a power play. He's just, he doesn't want to be number two. He wants to be number one. But of course, he can't just say that. So he comes to Moses, you know, and he, he spins it as, oh, you know, the whole assembly is holy. All the people. I mean, basically accuses Moses of being a despot and of only being interested in the power and of using nepotism to put his brother in charge. Like he lays these accusations at Moses. Now, how does Moses respond. What's the first thing that Moses does? So he lays these accusations in verse three. Verse four begins, when Moses heard this, he fell face down. Did you hear that phrase repeated? It happens three times in this passage. It happens here in verse four, he falls face down. In verse 22, we're told Moses and Aaron fell face down. And then again in verse 45, we're told that Moses and Aaron, they fell face down. What are they doing? Well, fortunately in verse 22, it tells us what they're doing. Moses and Aaron fell face down and cried out, oh God, they're praying. When when Moses falls face down, he is praying to God. And in fact, we have another example of him praying in this story, although he doesn't fall face down. It's in verse 15. Moses became very angry and said to the Lord. So four times in this passage, as Moses faces opposition, he prays. And did you notice that's the very first thing he does? Korah accuses him of being a, a despot, of nepotism, of lording it over the people, of basically being on a power trip. Everyone should be in charge, Korah says. But you, you've set yourself up above everyone. Accuse him all this stuff, none of which is true. Moses didn't do any of that. God did that. Moses did not set himself up. Moses didn't set his brother up. God did all of that, and Moses obeyed. But Moses' first response is to pray. He falls face down. Did you get that? Like he's not just praying. He's praying in a posture of submission. 
You know, we don't do this anymore in our culture, although hundreds of years we used to. But it's very common around the world, and it was absolutely very common in most of the world for a long time, that you humble yourself by getting lower than someone. That you show submission and humility by bowing or by laying down, by being prostrate. That's what Moses does. When they accuse him of these terrible things, none of which are true, the first thing he does is go down on his face before the Lord and pray. In this case, we don't know what he prayed, although it probably is pretty evident from what you see what happens next. We only know what he actually said in verse 22. But I have to confess, when people accuse me of things, my first response is generally not to hit my knees and pray. It is generally not to submit myself to God and to pray to him. Like those aren't the first words out of my mouth generally. If someone accused me of being a despot, of nepotism, of being in it only for the power, I don't think that's the first thing that I would do. I am so impressed with Moses that that's just his natural first reaction is to hit the ground before God, to to pray to God and to submit himself fully to him. Because what does he do next? What's the very next thing that happens? Look in verse five. They've just accused Moses of these terrible things, of of just being a, a, a powerful maniac who's only in it to lord it over everybody else. And Moses' response in verse five is, in the morning, the Lord will show who belongs to him. Moses basically says to them, okay, we'll let the Lord decide. They've just said to him, anybody can offer sacrifices. Oh, what's this thing about you set up your brother and now he's the only one who can do this and all of us have to come to him? That's crazy, Korah and his followers say. Everyone's holy. The whole assembly, we're all the people of God. Any of us can offer sacrifices anytime we want. And Moses' response after praying is, okay, we'll let the Lord decide. Again, I just think that is so impressive. And think about the odds here. You've got Korah, these other three guys that are, that are with him, Dathan, Abiram, and On, and then you got 250 community leaders. And it's just him and his brother. And he's not gonna be offering a censor because he knows he's not allowed to do that. Only his brother's allowed to do that. It's 253 to one. Aaron on one side, the 250 community leaders, Korah and these other guys, like these are not good odds. But Moses seems so confident that God will take care of it. I assume that's what God said to him when he prayed. God said, hey, have them come. And you know, if they say everyone can offer censors, everyone can make offerings to me, great. Have them come do it and I'll show them. I assume God told him that in prayer. But the confidence that Moses has to have, 250 to one. And Moses says, again, okay, we'll let God decide. And again, I think if this happened to me, I don't think that would be the words that came out of my mouth. Okay, we'll let God decide. You know, there's this, there's this verse in the, uh, the, the, the Pentateuch, the first five books of the scriptures that, that Moses himself wrote that says that Moses was the most humble man on the planet at the time. And, you know, we usually kind of snicker at that and, and think, hmm, I wonder if a scribe, you know, added, or after Moses died, somebody came along and added that or because they wanted to honor him. But, but you, you read these stories 
and you think about what you would do in his situation. And I start to think, wow, yeah, I mean, I can't imagine acting like this. I can't imagine anybody acting like this. Moses is in charge of a nation of well over 2 million people and has been for how, who knows however long. He's led them out of Egypt. The plagues against Pharaoh, the parting of the Red Sea, the Passover. I mean, you just think of all the incredible things that Moses has done. And it has not gone to his head. You think about what happens when you oppose powerful men. You tell powerful men they're wrong. The first thing they do is generally not get on their knees and pray. And the second thing they generally do is not say, well, okay, we'll let, we'll let the Lord take care of this. We'll let the Lord decide this. We'll see if you're right. I'm so, so impressed with how Moses handles this. And then notice the third thing he does, it's in verse eight. So Moses has said to this whole assembly of people, okay, you believe that anyone can offer their offerings. Anyone can burn incense to God. Anyone can make sacrifices to God. I believe God has said it must come through Aaron and the priesthood. So we'll let God decide. We'll let God show us. And then it says in verse eight, Moses also said to Korah, Now, we're not sure about this, but some of the commentaries I read said, it looks like Moses has gone to Korah privately later. It it looks in the text like this is happening at a later time in another place. And he's talking to Korah alone. Now, my Hebrew is not good enough to tell you that. I'm just relying on the commentaries. And some think that and some don't. But, But either way, Moses is talking to Korah. And we know after that in verse 12 that Moses tries to talk privately with these other two guys. He calls them and says, hey, let's get together. Now again, think about what happens. Let's say this is an hour later or something. If someone has just accused you of being a despot, of nepotism, of being in it for the power and the money and the glory, right? They have just said these terrible things about you and none of it's true. An hour later, are you going back to them trying to resolve this? I don't think I am. I think if this were me, if someone came and said this to me, you know, 20 people come to me from the church and say these sorts of things. They're like, Jeff, I'm sorry, this just isn't working. You can't pastor here anymore. You know, you're clearly only in this for the money and the power and and we don't want any more to do with this. I don't think an hour later, I would be calling him up saying, hey, can, can, can we talk about this? Let, let's dialogue. I think I would be out talking to my friends and my supporters. I would be trying to find people to see if they would support me in this. Moses isn't going out and talking to other people. He's trying to talk to them. And I'm so impressed with what he says to Korah because he just tells him the truth. He, he walks this fine line between abusing him, being angry and defending himself, or like trying to negotiate, you know, and offer some sort of unity government or, or pay him off or whatever. He just tells him, look, God has given you this incredible privilege and position. You have all of these rights, but you want the one thing you don't have. Remember, Korah is number two. He's a division head. He wants to be number one. He wants to be the high priest. Moses says, you want the one thing you can't have. And that's God did that. Just like God gave you your position, God gave Aaron his position. So you are fighting God. He walks this great line in just telling Korah the truth without you know, abusing him and yelling at him and how dare you and without like trying to butter him up or anything. 
I'm so impressed with that. And notice what happens when he tries to get together with the other guys and they won't come. And what they say about him is even worse. I mean, what Korah has said about him, you know, is spin. It's not true, but he hasn't really come like right out and, and said, you're a despot. He's hinted at it. He's talked about the people and all. These guys, they just come right out and flat out lie. You said you'd lead us to a land of milk and honey, but you haven't led us anywhere. We live in the desert. Well, yeah, you remember why they're in the desert? Moses took them to Canaan, the land of milk and honey. They refused to go in. He tried to get them to go in and they refused. Well, we talked about this when we looked at the bad guys in the rebellion. They've just turned turned reality completely upside down. It's not their fault they didn't go in. It's Moses' fault they didn't go in. Oh, Egypt, that was the land of milk and honey. They were slaves in Egypt. They were being slaughtered. There's a genocide against their children. Egypt was horrible. But now it's like, oh, Egypt was great and you want us to die. I mean, they just say horrible, horrible things about Moses. Look what Moses does in 15. Then Moses became very angry. Yeah, I would too if somebody said that about me. And said to the Lord, not to other people. Moses is rightfully furious. Like the slander they have just said about him is far worse than what Korah said. And what Korah said was pretty bad. They have just outright lied and slandered Moses to his face through whatever this messenger is that goes back and forth. And Moses talks to God about it. He doesn't talk to anybody else. Do you hear what he says to God? I've not taken so much as a donkey from them. Like That would be normal in this world. Moses is the leader. He's the top of the government. You would expect him to receive tribute. That is normal. If you had a herd of 20 donkeys you absolutely would expect to have to give one to Moses. That's absolutely the way it would have happened in Egypt. That's the way it happened all over the ancient world. You had to pay tribute to the people above you. Moses hasn't done that. He hasn't taken tribute. And again, I think if this were me and I had done this, that I had not taken tribute, I'd basically done all this leadership and things for free, quote unquote, and then these guys accuse me slanderously of these terrible things, I think I'd be out talking to other people about it. Hey, have I ever taken a donkey from you? No. You think if Korah gets to be in charge, you think he's going to take your stuff? You bet he is. Oh, wow. Like, I would be talking to other people. My anger would drive me out to slander back. They've slandered me. I want to slander them back. Moses doesn't do that. He doesn't slander them back. He talks to God about his anger, and he tries to talk to his opponents And he is doing exactly what we said in that that second thing. He is completely leaving this in God's hands. He's not talking to other people. He's not gathering support, at least not that the, the text tells us. He's not slandering them back. He's speaking truthfully. He's praying over everything. He's leaving it in God's hands. I am so impressed with how Moses handles this. And then notice that this story goes up a notch. Because in verse 19, it takes this really serious turn. They gather together. You know, and I'm wondering, what's God going to do? You got 250 guys with a censer, which is basically a pot with a long metal handle on it. And you put incense in it and a little gray, excuse me, a coal, something hot, a heat source, and a grate and incense on top of that. And the heat makes the incense fragrant and you can smell it. And they're, they're all going to hold those out at the tent of meeting. And I think, what's going to happen? Like, is, is Aaron's going to burst into flame, right? Or is a light going to come down on Aaron's? Or are all the other ones going to melt? I, something's going to happen that you'll know, Moses says, God will choose the man. 
Well, it turns out God has a far more dramatic plan than that. He's not going to have Aaron's censor suddenly start glowing. He's going to destroy the guys who did this. They're not going to stop. They're rebelling against Moses and Aaron and God, because God set this up, and they're not going to stop rebelling. And so God's going to be done with them. And in fact, God's going to be done with the whole lot. You know, it turns out there's a whole crowd that's gathered around there, and they're not there to support Moses, even though Moses has led them all this time. I mean, especially look at what happens the next day. They are not on Moses' side in this. And God says, I'm going to get rid of the whole lot of them, the whole rebellious lot. Again, we don't know how many of them there are. But whoever is there, God's like, I'm just going to be done with them. And what do Moses and Aaron do? They fall down, we're told in verse 22. They fall down before God and they pray to him, oh God, who gives breath to all living things, will you be angry with everyone? It's only one man who sinned. They are praying for their enemies. For these people who have all gathered around who aren't supporting them, they are praying that God will protect these guys. Wow. And God does. He answers them. He's like, okay. He only punishes the guys who are actually rebellious. Korah, his associates, the 250 leaders, those are the only people who die, are the people who were actively opposing Moses. And then the next day, that same group of people that Moses saved, that same group of people that Moses and Aaron prayed for, oh God, don't be angry with them. It's not their fault. It, it, it's this guy. This is the only guy. They say it's only one guy. It's only this guy's fault. Don't punish everyone. Those people that Moses and Aaron prayed for, petitioned God to be gracious to, oh, they turn on Moses and Aaron. You have killed the Lord's people, they say. Like, again, it's, they're just slandering them. Moses didn't make the ground open up. They're just slandering them. And this time, there's no back and forth. There's no up and down. Moses doesn't discuss it with them. God shows up immediately and says, I have a two strikes and you're out policy on outright rebellion. And what do Moses and Aaron do? They fall down again. They pray again. These guys who they prayed for and saved yesterday, these people oppose them and slander them far worse today, and they're still praying for them. Only God doesn't listen to them this time. God said yes the last time. God doesn't say yes this time. God goes after them. A plague breaks out. And look at what happens. Moses says to Aaron, take your censer with incense in it and hurry to the assembly to make atonement. Now, here's the thing. You can't make atonement with incense. I mean, go back and read Exodus and Leviticus. Go back and read the law. There's only one way to make atonement for sin. That's a blood sacrifice. You have to kill an animal. Hebrews 9 says it. Without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sins. You can't take some incense and make atonement. That's why in Easter last week, we don't celebrate that Jesus went to Golgotha and waved some sweet-smelling incense around and everyone was forgiven. Incense doesn't make atonement, but God accepts it. We're told Aaron stands between the living and the dead. Aaron goes out to people who hate him, who have slandered him, who have tried to take away what God has given him, people who want him gone. And he puts himself between death and them. And it stops. The plague stops. You can't make atonement with incense, 
but God accepts. I don't know what that means, but it sounds serious that you stand between the living and the dead. Aaron is a mediator. Aaron looks like Jesus. This is what Jesus did for us, the scripture says. He stood between us and the wrath of God. He shielded us from death. When the death that we rightfully should have had came for us, it hit him instead because he stepped between us and death. Aaron looks like Jesus to people who hate him. You know, the things that, that Moses and Aaron did, th- these first three things of that they, they immediately go to prayer. They submit themselves to God in prayer. They, they ask the Lord to deal with it. They, they, they accept, oh, we'll, let, we'll let God deal with it. They don't defend themselves. They don't fire back. There's no best off, this defense is a good offense. Like, okay, we'll let God deal with it. They, they go and try and talk to the people. When they're angry, they talk to God. They, they don't try and talk to other folks. Like those things, you can do those things. You can decide to do those things, and I would encourage you to. I would encourage you to decide that if you are facing opposition right now or next time you face opposition, I would encourage you to do that. I would encourage you to just cover it in prayer, submissively before God, pray, put it up there. I would encourage you to trust God to deal with it, to not think you have to take care of it yourself, that you have to protect yourself, that you have to fight back or defend yourself, that that you can let the Lord guide you in what that looks like, that you would try and talk to people who oppose you, that you would talk to God when you're angry and not talk to other people that when you've been slandered, you wouldn't slander back. These things are all throughout the scriptures. I would wholeheartedly encourage you to do that, but you can do that. By an act of will, you can decide to do those things, but you also need to do the second part of the story. You need to pray for your enemies. You need to do good for those who hate you. You need to act like your Lord. You need to put yourself between your enemies and harm, because that's what it means to love those who hate us. That's what it means to be followers of Jesus. That's what it means that we never hold grudges, that we have no record of wrongs, that we don't keep track of who said what about us or anything like that, that we, like Aaron did, stand between life and death. Because that's what Jesus did for us. Those first three things, that's great advice and do it. But to do this, you're going to have to know Christ. You're going to have to meditate on him. You're going to have to ask his spirit inside you. You can't naturally do this. You can't naturally pray for your enemies. You certainly can't naturally do it when you did it yesterday and now they're attacking you even worse today. And I don't think there's any way to go stand between the living and the dead for people who hate you unless you are filled with the spirit of Christ. Unless you are filled with the memory of what we celebrated last week, that Jesus has done this for us. And he tells us now, now you go and do likewise. So let's pray. Uh, Jesus, thanks for a great example uh, of Moses in opposition Thanks for the the great example of these things he does, of of prayer, of submission to you, of letting you handle it, of trying to talk to people and not slandering back. These are great things, and I pray, Holy Spirit, you would help us to remember this. But then I also help us, that you would help us be like Aaron at the end of the story. You would help us be people who pray for those who hate us, who ask you to do good for those who oppose us. We ask it today, and when they oppose us tomorrow, we ask it tomorrow. 
And that when death comes stalking for people, that, that we stand between the living and the dead, just like Aaron did. For we have the words of life. We have your spirit inside us, Jesus. Transform us. That we would be like that. There's no way we can do that unless your spirit lives in us. Unless your spirit grows in us to such an extent. Please, Lord, help us to look like you. Help us to do these things that people would see it and know it. Just what Peter says, that people would see how we live. Even though they slander us now, they will praise you on the day that you return because it is so evident that you live in us. We ask this in your name, Jesus, always. Amen.